Hello and welcome to another episode of Need to Read, You Absolute Legends. It's me, Ed Cunningham, your host as always, and today, the conversation, I'm joined by Dr Rachel Kent. She's a researcher and lecturer at King's College London, and her research is primarily in the way that technology and media influence our health, something that... I'm quite concerned about at the moment. Um, She does that under the term of digital health. And her story of how she got more interest in the field is quite a concerning one. um, But it was amazing to hear her be so honest and to hear her introduction story. So we discuss self-representation on social media, dating apps, neoliberalism and Margaret Thatcher, her influence on how we view health today, how we behave with technology and how it behaves with us. Um, This is a really important conversation. I think technology is creeping more and more into our lives and I'm finding it quite scary so it was only right that I got an expert on to chat about it just to see if my worries are valid or not. Now in this podcast we do talk about mental health, it's hard to mention technology without acknowledging its impact on our mental health and if you are struggling with your mental health at the moment and feeling overwhelmed then it may be time for you to consider therapy and speaking to a counsellor. It is something that we discuss in this podcast and Need to Read is sponsored by BetterHelp. So they provide an online therapy service via video or phone call so you could have therapy from home, therapy out for a walk. I found something quite freeing about having therapy on the move um, and it's all done through their secure website and their app. Um, So within 48 hours of completing the questionnaire on there, you'll be matched with a therapist. And on top of that, you get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. Now, this podcast is a longer episode and there is some loose timestamps in the description. So that's where you find information for the sponsors, the podcast, how you can sign up to emails and how you can support the show as well. Um, obviously, the greatest way you can support the show is sharing it. So if you do enjoy this conversation, please do give it a share. But that is all the housekeeping out of the way. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rachel Ken. Dr. Rachel Ken, what a pleasant introduction we've done off of camera um, but now we're recording welcome to a need to read and thank you thank so much for agreeing to come on thank you so much for having me I'm re- yeah really looking forward to our conversation yeah I think we, we've already spoken about how we've got some like definitely crossover in our interests obviously you're a doctor and, and you actually do proper research mine's just kind of like reading, <laughs> reading a few things here and there and no one checks to checks me if I'm wrong essentially um so I think you're a better place to talk about this now. And so that's why I'm excited for this conversation. Um, but just to give an instruction to the listeners, what, what is primarily your research on and, and why are you interested in it? How do you get into it? So broadly, my research looks at how digital technologies influence our mental and our physical health. And this is very much in everyday life. Um, but how I've kind of come to this, um, it's a bit of a long story. So I'll try and hey, keep it as possible um I guess what's probably useful as a starting point is that I grew up in an environment which really was around looking at health as being very holistic and so my mother was an acupuncturist and so we very much grew up on eastern medicine in our household um, and that was really I guess a lens to get me thinking around well what is the relationship between the information we have about health and how health actually how we actually manage our health in everyday life how that actually influences is what we do and when I say health I do very much mean umbrella health I mean in terms of our lifestyle our diet our exercise 
but of course our mental health as well and I think given what's happened over the last two years that's become increasingly more a part of the, I think the public conversation obviously your fantastic work and research is a really really important part of that conversation of raising that awareness um, but I think that you know not so long ago there was so much stigma associated and we didn't quite understand how technology was influencing our health so that's kind of where I've got to today but in terms of my actual kind of specific research that we'll be talking about in a bit more detail today that was the foundation of my, my master's and my PhD work um, and a couple of publications that we're going to discuss in more detail. I was doing my master's um, degree and I had been researching for my undergrad and my master's how public health messaging of health, so things like the five a day campaign in the UK, as well as uh, public um, political speeches, so from the kind of the Tories and from Labour, kind of comparing them. I was really interested in that political influence on the discourse of health, so how we talk about health in our everyday, how does that shape how we think about it? So that I already had an interest in that kind of based upon my upbringing. And then I had this sudden overwhelming desire to get healthier and I had no real specific uh, goal to that desire. It was just this kind of now I reflect very neoliberal, like I must be productive and more healthy in my everyday life. I don't really know why, but I want to do this for some cultural kind of social reason that we can again talk about more. But I then had never been a runner, started running. I didn't think that my physicality was really lend itself to running. But then I got really into running and I was using a Nike Plus running application, following that quite diligently. And then at the same time, it was I think it was about 2013. It was when that um, the juicing kind of diet fad. Oh, yeah. Kind of, exploded and suddenly that was like the latest thing to do to like be healthy and so in combination I was diet I was um juicing not to lose any weight just to be healthier and I was also yeah. running loads and obviously the applications that I was using couldn't speak to one another uh, I didn't know what I was doing I was just running and juicing and thinking I was doing all these like amazing healthy things for my body three weeks in only three weeks into this phase um, I hospitalized myself. I had two abscess sized kidney, um, two egg sized abscesses on my kidneys. Um, I had full body sepsis. So all of my organs were going into some sort of early kind of failure, massive uh, infection throughout my body. And I ended up in hospital for nearly a month. I um, was really critically ill. And I remember after the kind of trauma, that whole experience of being in hospital was really, you know, awful, obviously came out the other side of it. And when I was conscious again, um, and I'd lost about two stone in weight, I was an absolute waif. And I'd had this oh, wait, so really... juice, juice cleanse work. <laughs> totally work. <laughs> you end up in hospital and you can't eat. <laughs> Do you stand down though. Exactly. <laughs> So and then I, I remember turning my phone on and my phone was it suddenly alerted saying, Rachel, you've not run for X amount of weeks. Rachel, look at all of your friends on your you know, community on Nike who have run. Rachel, time for a run? Question mark, which is all of the notifications at the time, whether they still exist or not. I don't use running apps anymore, probably for obvious reasons. Um, but I just and I had this bizarre sense of guilt, this bizarre sense of like, oh, I haven't been for a run. And then I was like, but no, I've just been in hospital because of not understanding how to look after my body and following very, very closely the guidance uh, of the design of these applications. And of course, yeah. the juicing app didn't know that I was over-exercising. The running app didn't know that I was under-eating under effectively. And the combination of the two put me in hospital. And so that really was where 
the, my PhD idea was born of understanding, yeah. well, how does tech influence our health in everyday life? Uh, and that was my kind of experience uh, firsthand. Yeah. What, what was the feedback loop that just made you like commit to that so diligently, like straight away, like within three weeks, you've run yourself into hospital? What, what was it about the running and the juicing that it like, it was obviously creating some form of like dopamine hit for you. Mm-hmm. What was it about it, it upon reflection? what the motivation as to why I started doing it in the first place well I just think in terms of like carrying on because you say about these apps and they they tempt you in Mm. um and obviously you're juicing as well as running so was there something that app was giving you was it like the social connection or the social validation and stuff like that because it's interesting to look into that stuff yeah absolutely and that's kind of what I, I have done since basically because I was so interested in what motivated me what then happened was obviously very physically detrimental and mentally in some respects I think that it was about authority of information so as as being someone that had never run before I had no idea really about how to like track my runs and things like that so the NICAP provided me with that information also provided me with you know calorie reduction of if I run x amount of miles things like that so we have the metrics and quantifications of that physical experience, which as often data presents itself to us as a, some kind of factual or truth-telling authority, of course, we know that data doesn't always mean truth, and especially not on consumer applications, health apps, absolutely not, and that's where the problem lies. But I think at that moment in time, I didn't understand that, and I certainly hadn't researched that specifically. I was looking more broadly at how health was being influenced by kind of more, you know, political um, and public health messaging, governmental messaging. So this was about seeking out a level of authority and also the wider socio-cultural and political environment, which tells us to be more focused upon being self-managers of our own healthcare, you know, trying to seek out increasing information and knowledge, that lay expertise that we've seen spike in in terms of the pandemic, in terms of that pressure to feel like we have to equip ourselves with as much information as possible. I think that's what it, that's what it started as. Yeah. Where from from your findings, have you seen the most prominent sort of quantification of health measures? That's a big question. (laughs) 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 do you mean publicly or privately as in do you mean from a public health perspective or do you mean from a self-tracking individual i I just mean like self-tracking individuals people listening who are like oh well i don't do that it's like well you do it's here well i think what's interesting is that we can extend out the argument from quant to qual and what i mean by that is self-tracking and health tracking and fitness tracking whatever apps you're using we've now got these umbrella terms for them which we didn't have not that long ago when the consumer boom happened in what 2010 onwards from these apps being and wearables being commercially viable for consumers yeah. own and the militarization of sensors and cost reduction etc when they became uh, widely adopted by consumers we see an arc of quantification of health data holding some kind of what's presented as legitimate authority so people like to see numbers on a graph they like to see you know distances run or the speed or the calorie reduction from certain amount of um, exercise energy expenditure whatever it might be and then we see a shift arguably this is what my the phd research and the book is focusing on is that more qualitative representation but i still think that's an extension of the quantitative capturing of bodies and and what i mean by that is that we are still life logging we are lifestyleizing our health behaviors now so rather than sharing that quantitative data that once held 
in certain social media etiquette spaces, that kind of authority and legitimation. Uh, Now we're sharing an image of us going on a run because it's more aesthetically pleasing and Insta worthy. And so I think that's the biggest shift is that kind of quantification, but the relationship with qualifying that quantification with something that's Insta friendly or visually engaging. Yeah. God, it seems like it's a complicated subject. (laughs) I was was waiting to the point to the point where I was going to have a brain fart. Yeah. I was like, right, 11 minutes in. That's that's not too bad. Um, but, but all right so let's let's take the the standard person your, your everyday person how is this impacting them and, and you touched on neoliberalism earlier and i was going to ask you for a definition of it then but i didn't want to interrupt the flow of it um but i guess how it impacts the individual neoliberalism ties in quite nicely together yeah. but would you mind because you'll have a better definition than i do but just defining neoliberalism and then linking the two together if yeah if that's right course yeah yeah and thank you for pulling me back on that because it's it's a really important concept that has only become more entrenched in health management around the world with covid and that's something that i'm looking at in in a recent project so neoliberalism is a political rationality that advocates free market principles over so many different areas of life and i argue in my research this is about the body and when i say free market principles i mean this idea that we are responsible for our bodies we must seek out as much information as possible to be consumers of healthcare. and we see with the retreat of state support with the lack of funding for the nhs the retreat of the welfare state the rise of thatcherism in the 1980s and neoliberalism around the world And then, of course, the austerity measures in 2008 with the global financial crash, we see increasing austerity around the world, which means states can't look after public health care to that extent that they once did. Or at least that's how the money is being allocated. Increasing privatisation. That means that we become increasing managers and, and consumers of healthcare provision. So we are seeking out in our everyday lives health applications Google searches, um, WebMD, patients like me, we're seeking out via lots of different tech and platforms and media health guidance to manage our healthcare because we don't have the healthcare um, information available to us or the support that we once did in the UK, We, have, of course, with the welfare state. And that uh, one's being inclusive and very paternalistic, so looking after us. Now we have a very different dynamic where we are expected to be managers of our own healthcare provision. And that's how I see neo- neoliberalism uh, intersecting in our everyday practices in relationship with health. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how that, that makes sense. It. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think so. I think in terms of this this whole idea that we are now just making ourselves better so we can serve society better in a way that like it, it kind of did used to look after us in that way and now the onus is on us and that's just an extra pressure on the individual human and I guess like Hopefully. it's kind of that's why governments make sense so that they can put some rules in place look after us a little bit give us this health care we give you a little bit of money for taxes yeah um it's, it's a shame to see that going are there any countries in the world you you might not know this are there any countries in the world that aren't behaving in this way western world like first world countries um 
I know Denmark's got a pretty good healthcare system. Again, don't quote me on this, but again, I know that they've got quite a deep entrenched surveillance society that goes alongside it. So maybe yeah. that's where the trade-off comes. Not that I'm saying that they do mine that from third part, like sell that on to yeah. third parties. I don't know. Um, but no, I mean, my argument is that certainly with the individuals that I've worked with in the countries that they have lived in, this has been the dominant way of living. And it's about that balance of, as you say, the pressure that comes with for all of us every day to have to constantly equip ourselves with as much information or use all these different tech and wearables and then perhaps perform it online to serve some kind of intrinsic or external need in us. Yeah. All of these things are tied together. And that, to my mind, is really what the core of neoliberalism is. It's about being that individualized, to put it in Thatcherite terms, kind of self-entrepreneurial, you know, I must make the best of my life, be productive, be healthy, be positive. All of these things, I think, are very yeah. much entwined. I do think that it seems like that's the default now is that everyone hates this like self-entrepreneurial thing. People fetishize entrepreneurs to okay. a point and people that work online as well. And, and people often say to me, oh, I wish I could do what you do. I'm like, Honestly, like the grass is always going to be greener. Like there are a lot of days where I wish I just had a job where I could just turn up and not be my own boss and not have to put stuff online and, okay. and essentially be a little performing monkey for <laughs> other, other people in the world. And it gets right, right in my head. And I, I sent an email out this morning about how I need to, slow myself down because this idea of neoliberalism I, I came across it in selfie by will store and yes. it's uh have you read that yes yeah, yeah. Basically not all of it i really really yeah. want to dedicate some time to reading a whole book <laughs> but yeah well audiobook if, if you don't want to read it the audiobook is narrated by probably the best narrator out there um voice like butter it's great um <laughs> but the whole idea of neoliberalism was represented in that because of this yeah. this whole idea of the self and we are now so self-centric in our lives it's um it's coming to the point that we're not actually developing for ourselves anymore we're developing for this neoliberal idea of like we will be better in society we might yeah. be the one who bring this new product to market we'll be this famous entrepreneurial yeah. elon musk type yeah. figure if we and, just... that, and, that, and that's thatcher right yeah. and that's what she really kind of in our culture in the uk but of course we see it all over the world we're not you know we're not limited to it in the uk at all is that idea that i must make my own way in the world I must which comes of course from a place of privilege it's such a reductive notion that everybody has these opportunities and of course they don't there are huge oh, disparities yeah. <laughs> that's why I get really annoyed about it um, because it is so inhibited inhibiting to some people but the pressure it places on everybody is just absolute bollocks I think because what it does is is it makes us feel like we're never doing enough and I think that is where the root cause of so many mental health problems have come in is from this concept of if I'm not using my time productively it's wasted time or some nonsense like that um yeah. and it, it doesn't serve anybody other than you know the, the free market basically which yeah. is why it's these idea of free market principles and you see it everywhere you see it in government health messaging in terms of you know the pandemic this kind of othering from one citizen to another so don't get covid to be a burden on the state or to infect another citizen and of course none of us want to do that yeah but there's a real moralizing of health that's occurring now within public health messaging particularly during covid it's happened for, for decades but yeah. we've seen it during covid anyway so that's just me kind of tangentially attaching yeah, kind yeah. Of some interest to that but yeah i get really frustrated with it i don't think it serves us at all no i th i i especially think of that when it comes to like 
manifesting because manifesting seems to be this quite a neoliberal idea of like you've got to just turn yourself into this manifesting machine you can make money yeah. selling courses online on how to sell courses online yeah the of, commodification itself is like yeah. how I always kind of think about it in my mind and and exactly and I, I see in my own in my own work things like around digital detox and the yeah. kind of corporate optimization self-optimization spiel around digital detox that it's going to somehow make your employees more productive it's not about kind of enabling a space away from technology that we might all need because we know screen time isn't good for us when we're saturated it's more about making your employees more productive rather than making them happier or healthier and that's the that's the bit that I really really struggle with yeah I think that is a massive problem and I, I look back at when I had a proper job when I actually had a boss and the expectations that are on you. And I was thinking about doctor's appointments. So like, right, you have to have your doctor's appointment in the morning or in the afternoon. So it doesn't interrupt your middle floor of work. And every time I think about that, I've become such a brat and I've become so ungrateful for the fact that we can have jobs and stuff like that. But I'm like, that is bullshit. It's like, if you've got to go to the doctors, you don't need the extra stress of some manager breathing down your neck saying, oh, get that sorted in the morning. It's like, yeah, mate, you don't realise that Margaret, who's 83, and her six mates have all got that nine appointment booked for the next, like, four months. (laughs) At least, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's really... um... Well, that, that's another way of looking at health, isn't it? I think that the, the kind of wider impact of the kind of quantification of health is that we can kind of have those set parameters and ideas that health is one thing and not the other. I think in terms of mental health as well, I think things like mental health days are really important. Having mental health first aiders in the workplace are really important. Yeah. But we need to prioritise not just the physical health things that are affecting us every day, but also the mental health things. And we've seen that so much with COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was actually chatting to my dad this morning about mental health first aiders at work. Cause one of his friends one, and I was like, I just don't know how effective it would be because the he's it, my dad said to me, he's like, well, if you if you were feeling shit at work, wouldn't you speak to your work best mate? I was like, well, you you might not have a friend at work who you'd want yeah. to speak to, but the unfortunate case is, I just I cannot see many people who are at the point of like I haven't spoken to anyone else if they haven't spoken to their friends or family members, yeah. the likelihood of them going to someone who's mental health first aid on their floor who they probably don't really know that well to be like hey I'm really struggling today I I just don't know how likely it is I think I think the introduction of mental health days will will improve things greater than like a a mental health first aider because it, it, it means you don't have to talk about it so much with with someone yeah that one to one way yeah, yeah, no, I do agree. And there are things that you might not want to disclose in a work environment, which is totally understandable. It's like my manager's a wanker. I am. Your <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's making my life hell. Um, I want a new job. <laughs> All these things, like, of course, I guess where I've, my relationship with it is that I've done a lot of um, kind of well-being work with mental health first aiders for businesses to, to mm. run workshops with them. Oh, nice. So then kind of facilitating a space where we normalise talking about mental health in the workspace or at least giving them tools and strategies to manage their relationship with tech inside or outside of work. That's That's been my experience so far. Um, but yes, of course, in day-to-day life, that's really hard to implement. Yeah, I think it would be... It would be not too long before we see people employing like mental health officers within corporations. not like I'm sure places like Facebook probably have them already but before they like they'll come a little bit more commonplace yeah someone who's dedicated to like right how can we maintain the mental health of of our workforce but once again that will be for productivity as opposed to for 
their health and this and that's one true. thing whenever we had like wellness days or, or mental health awareness days I was like I just can't help but feel like you're ticking a box here yeah totally totally and this is when I do it with my business I'm very much focused upon this is for personal and professional relationships of health because like, I don't think you can um, with tech and health but I don't think you can remove one from the other and also it can't just be about productivity and work related um don't you know dynamics and relationships of tech and i know the irony that probably facebook does already have this is is um yeah kind of hilarious yeah it's um it's those big corporations are are quite scary and i think the fact that a lot of the people there send their kids to schools that are like tech free Mm. that just screams like what what, what the fuck are we doing guys why why aren't we looking at this um i've just started reading stolen focus by johan hari it came out yesterday And he's one of my favorite writers, but just the, his story started from him being with his 14 year old godson in America um, at Elvis's mum's house that was, you can go around on a tour. And he's like, I got there and I was handing an iPad and some headphones. And they're both handed iPad and headphones. You can't really hear each other speaking mm-hmm. to each other. And you're just sent on this map around the house by the iPad. He said when he was in one of the rooms, he saw an elderly couple arguing with each other about which room they were in. And he said the pictures on the iPad obviously matched the room exactly um, because, I mean, tech works, right? Yeah. But they were so focused on what was on the iPad, they couldn't see the fact that they were in this room. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that kind of story is, is becoming quite commonplace. And there's loads of information in, in that book um, yeah. that I wanted to talk about. But I think in terms of tracking as like a rewarding process he, he speaks of an experiment um of a guy early early like 1900s i think where he got a pigeon and gave it a treat every time it like flapped a wing in a certain way mm. and it, i think it was like the founding research essentially of like if you can hack someone's like dopamine um receptors like you can make them behave in any way you want yeah. and i guess that's where like health tracking and things like that comes into mm. Yeah, us obsessive. Yeah, um, it's gratifying, I, right? Like to get yeah. that badge to, to see. I think just even the acquisition of data kicks that dopamine and makes us go, "Oh, isn't that oh, nice to have that, that validation?" <laughs> yeah, we all love it. Um, it's so addictive and compulsive, and I think that this is where I mean, an addiction around tech is such a buzzword now, and I'm quick to kind of say that it's really important that we focus upon the kind of challenges of it because I think. Yeah a tech addiction doesn't just mean too much scrolling it's about that kind of cycle of addiction and understanding the kind of relationship between the compulsion the salience the withdrawal you know all of and drawing I draw upon psychiatric research um, a lot to try and help me understand the empirical you know research that I've done with with my participants because I've worked with them over a long long period of time so you can really see how that relationship changes but it is so gratifying getting that kick or getting that like or getting that comments because it speaks to something in us and, and that's different for everybody it's not just narcissism and it's you know we can kind of throw those terms around or maybe for some people it is but for everybody it, it speaks to this kind of sense of validation and belonging and community which is really I think in in the last two years where we've all la- lost so much face-to-face contact time with our loved ones with our colleagues with potential colleagues you know with strangers that that has fulfilled and become even more fulfilled a kind of space in our kind of heads and our hearts and become even more problematic over the last two years where we've all been increasingly isolated and I think that's why now 
the talk around mental health and tech addiction is so at the fore because we really are in the thick of it, I think, at the moment. Yeah, it, it seems to be that everyone was on Strava when uh, yeah. when when the lockdown came and it was like yeah. this, right, everyone has to do 5K. Like 5K is a, is a default run for some people, but 5K for other people is sort of fucking long way. Like yeah. if, if you if you can't run, like there's a reason the couch to 5K takes like 16 weeks or whatever it is to get you Hopefully. to that 5K. Yeah, um, yeah. And people going out and, and killing themselves to get a good time to put a picture yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. Um, how, how do you see social media influencing this like obsession we have have with tech is it is it because there are actually all right why why are people drawn to those who are obviously performing well in these like health health measures that we we see i think it's aspirational i think that we can look at that and see something to attain towards or even if we can't see ourselves individually attaining or achieving their goals it's kind of rewarding and heartwarming to see somebody achieving and physical fitness is something that of course we celebrate and that's something to to celebrate but I guess the problem being is that the devices we're using to kind of monitor uh, and watch and surveil other people achieving these goals or sharing this content or whatever it might be make us addictive make us compulsive over, over time it's not something that happens overnight yeah but they make us comparative and they make us competitive even if we're not kind of even aware we're doing it we often have those little trigger moments when we see someone else's content online or we see somebody achieving these goals we feel comparative and it comes back to status and i think it was i forget his name but the guy that wrote the book yeah 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 yeah. so it's about status i think there's there's a i think he speaks to it really well um in that book um and i think that you know we want to see people doing well but i think also in lockdown there was almost like this really competitive aspect of toxic productivity which i've, I've written about that we kind of went from fomo so the fear of missing out to the fear of not being perceived as productive in lockdown yeah. um, which i was kind of coining toxic productivity which was just such a bizarre thing that happened and I, I did this research project and I was working with people and suddenly you know people are renovating their houses they're learning new languages they're baking banana bread every day you know they're you know they're doing all these amazing things in the middle of like the biggest collective trauma that like yeah. you know we've experienced since like world war ii and suddenly everybody's doing all this stuff but even if they're not doing it they feel like they should be doing it or they're making themselves do it and I just kind of felt like saying hold up hold up hold up like all we need to worry about right now is mental and physical health. We don't need to. So I think that's a part of it as well. I think there's an element where we, you know, we want to see people doing well. We want to see, um, and we see that's very aspirational, but it signifies that neoliberal productivity thing we have in our culture, which kind of celebrates optimization, full optimization yeah. of the mind and the body, um, which I think is, is to an extent, a kind of a helpful thing to have culturally that we want to push ourselves and do better and learn more and educate and, and whatever it might be that's your personal interest or professional interest but it's damaging when you're doing it for the wrong reasons and the wrong yeah. reasons are often tech nudged or tech motivated so your device nudging you to go for a run or you're seeing yeah. other people doing it online that might make you feel comparative and then make you feel stress or negativity or guilt or shame about your own behavior and that's the kind of negative feedback loop that i think is really problematic and it happens with health it happens with productivity and it's yeah there's that neoliberal underpinning again i think 
Yeah, it's it's mental what social media can make people do. In in yeah. terms of that comparison, I've I've done some stuff before, and I'm like, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. And I often wonder like how much better my life would be if I wasn't on social media. I'm sure that first mm. little bit would be quite difficult, but if I didn't have the podcast, I think would I be on social media? Probably not. This is it. Would, it. Would, I, would I be yeah, yourself on the foot a little bit socially, but I mean, people did it for fucking years before. Like, mm. no one needed that. I'm I'm almost at a point now on my phone where I'm going to be getting people to just solely call me, or at least have that on my WhatsApp like thing. Just like, please, just like call me. I'd love to chat yeah. to you, but just like, yeah, no point messaging. Yeah, <laughs> I love voice notes. Actually, I'm a big fan of voice noting. Yeah. I find that great because you can hear somebody's voice. You get that sense of like what's going on for them. You can hear their yeah. emotion on like yeah. a text or whatever, but also it's really convenient, <laughs> which I sound like a right neoliberalist now, but like, you know, you can kind of like do it around the rest of your day. Um, I don't know. I like the, I also, I quite like like pottering around and cooking and voice noting people and yeah. with my friends. I don't know. I, I quite, I quite like voice noting, but yeah. Do you have any other like behaviors that you do in terms of like trying to, get yourself off of technology or like what, what is your relationship with it because I suppose you're <sighs> researching it you're seeing it technology. I feel <laughs> yeah I have a very critical lens and I don't mean like I'm I think negatively of it I mean I'm just continually very reflexive about how I feel when I'm on social media a lot of the time and I'm aware that I am on social media more because of my work and I have a very I think like yourself a very uneasy relationship with that because I don't like to promo myself does anybody I don't it feels very uncomfortable but at the same time it's like no, no I've I've, I've, I've written this book chapter or something and I want to share yeah. it and, and really I guess I me as a researcher I, I, I do research because I want to help people understand their behavior yeah. um, so a part of that has to be I have to promote it but I'm not even though I don't like it but I guess in day-to-day -day life it's constantly having that reflexivity of like what's my motivation for doing certain behaviors online i.e posting sharing commenting scrolling and yeah. then in terms of like actually distancing myself or managing my everyday relationship whether it's very physical I will put my phone in a different room I will or in a drawer or my laptop um, I'm fortunate enough now to have moved and I have a study space which I know is, yeah. is you know, I feel very privileged to have this space so I can shut my door on my work um, or when I didn't I would pack away my home office like in the evenings or the weekends so it's not a visual reminder of stuff that I might need to do or emails to answer or whatever it might be um, I also put my phone on as I said before we started the, the, this conversation I put my phone on um, airplane mode all the time like if I need to dedicate a couple of hours I'll just put it on airplane mode and put it in the next room so I don't habitually maybe just pop into that room check my phone and, and I can't see any notifications yeah so it's about that kind of disruption and then having like tech free periods every week is really really important for me so Sundays I tend to turn my phone off for the day and then a couple yeah. of evenings a week that's an absolute key to reset because as you say like we don't need to be available all the time. Yeah. We don't need to um, have that continual flow of communication. And if we do, wonderful, and seek it out and use the tech for it. But I think that alone time and uninterrupted screen time, uninterrupted time without screens is really... Uninterrupted screen time. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> no Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think when people underestimate actually how much their phone really fuck with their day if they just get a little uh notification coming through I've, I've, i think i've read recently that like an interruption is can cause like a, a constant interruption to your work can cause like a as much as like a 10 iq drop which i think 
Wow. Like, um, like I think they did this test at Harvard. They put people through a test. One control group had like no no messages coming through, and the other had emails and messages coming through whilst they were doing it. And I thought about it. I, I don't know what a ten drop in IQ is, apart mm. from reference to he said that being stoned is about a five point drop on IQ. That seems like a big drop then. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking, like, yeah. I definitely. I'm stoned often and definitely feel stupider. <laughs> so like being distracted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, being, being distracted can cause a massive like drop to you. And, and just those yeah. little messages coming through, you've got this like attention residue. Um, it's, yeah. it's just mental that we allow these things like in the room with us all the time, yeah. like a parent carrying a baby. Yeah, yeah, this is it. The physical extension, the extension of our, of our physicality is often how I describe it, is that it mediates our mental and emotional um, interactions and sense of self and sense of identity, as well as whatever we're trying to do. And that physical extension of self, you know, like that's why I think it's a real attachment. You know, we have all yeah. of us have serious attachment issues with our devices <laughs> that we, we don't like to leave or be in be without it. And that really does prompt anxiety. So I think practicing being without it can actually really kind of reassert those boundaries that um, I find personally really valuable um, yeah. to have a healthy relationship with my devices. And also it's probably good practice getting a little bit anxious about where your phone is. Like you yeah. need that kind of little bit of exposure to it, to, to realise how dire the situation is. Well, this is it. I think it's moments of clarity that when you're just on tech all the time, you don't have. And suddenly you're like, why do I feel stagnant? Why can't I sleep properly? Why do I feel like crap? And I keep preparing my lifestyle. Why am I feeling stressed all the time and distracted? Oh, right. It's because I'm on my phone or a device for 16 hours a day. It's like, oh, right. Well, yeah, that's probably a part of it, isn't it? Um, of course, it's not going to. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So there's there's the consumption side of it, like mm. that, that's the bad thing. But in terms of the people who are creating, I know you've done some work and, and spoken about social media, like self-representation. Am I understanding that right? Isn't that's just the way that you're putting yourself out there online? Yeah, absolutely. And there are many reasons for the ways in which that we construct and represent our bodies and identities. But yeah, that's how I see it. And I'm kind of almost leaning more towards this concept of performativity now, because I think once upon a time, and again, this speaks to, I think, having grown up without tech and then adopted mm. it later on in life. Um, I think that fortunately, those of us that didn't grow up with it have a lens on what life was like without it. Yeah. And so when I started doing research, it did feel like it was a self-representation, as in like one way that we would perform certain aspects. Whereas now I do see it more as just performativity because we're all so aware of how constructed and, 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 and inauthentic it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do we get around that? Because you might have just ruined my sleep forever. Now I'm never going to stop thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> yeah. like, um, how do we get around it? I guess like this shameless self-promotion and stuff, like it's it seems like it's a necessity for so many, you and I included. Um it is and I would argue that even if we're not consciously doing it we are there's a element of because of the technological kind of the commercial infrastructures of the platforms that we use are designed in a way to make content you know aesthetically pleasing so let's take Instagram the kind of wild beast that's turned into as an example yeah you know 
once upon a time, Instagram was perceived as a more private environment away from Facebook that was less context collapsed in terms of the networks that we might yeah. have, was seen to be more authentic than Facebook. You know, as, as Facebook became less cool and Instagram became kind of more cool and then got completely kind of commodified and commercialized by yeah. um, corporations, um, it's kind of developed into this space where it's constructed authenticity and we kind of now have the rise of the more demonized self. So it's not so no, it's no longer the kind of idealized, my life's great all the time. Yeah. I look perfect all the time. We're now shifting more towards this is my cellulite. I'm having a bad day kind yeah. of representations of bodies and health and identity. Um, and so, but with that, I think has made us look back on things that, well, you know, everything that we post is a curation. We're always thinking about, the way that we'll angle a photo or the language that we'll use or the or the text or the linguistics or the syntax of a sentence or the hashtag. Nice. It's all a construction. So even if we are sharing it for sharing sake and I share on, on Facebook mainly for my grandma because she loves yeah. Facebook yeah. And, and and for my and for my parents' friends because I've got a lot of them on Facebook and obviously I haven't seen them for a very long time. Yeah. And I like that sociality. Yeah. But of course I'm still sharing a constructed element of my life it's not every day all day that I'm sharing it's still a consideration we're always considering what we're sharing in every way shape or form and I don't think that anything gets shared that isn't now some kind of commodification of the self yeah oh my god it's mental <laughs> I know that's so, very very dystopian but <laughs> yeah it really is I and this I I find it going on like dating apps and stuff like that it's something I've recently gone on and I don't think I'm going to be on them for very long um but it's just like you're in a shop window yeah and there's just a lot of like people and you're like right this is what they look like because it did used to be just kind of what people look like when you were online and now I'm like yeah. things like him just like right give us some prompts of of things to say so you're not only then just judging what this person looks like but you're going to gauge their whole personality mm. on these two or three prompts which yeah. is just goes to show like the rise in this like small amounts of information for us to make these broad um judgments on yeah i think there's a word for this um non-regressive prediction explain so da daniel kahneman i listened to him on sam harris's podcast mm -hmm. but non-regressive prediction is when you just get a, not a lot of information and make these grand scale oh i see yeah so like oh, yeah. we we interview someone so we, we'll have a chat today for an hour and a half i'm like yeah do you know what I really like Rachel. She's a lovely person. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know all of you. Like yeah. it's, I'm, I'm taking an hour and a half and I'm like, just making this grand scale. Like, oh yeah, she's sound. I yeah, know that I that's, love that. That's, that's a great, that's a great concept. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. And I'll have to hit you back up for the citation. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah it, that's um, really brilliant. Yeah. Cause it's like slices of, um, uh, it's, slices of ourselves isn't it it's just pockets it's just elements it's just small yeah. facets and I think actually Pia is it Pia Varis there's a, a brilliant scholar and I can't even remember which university she's affiliated with because I've got proper January brain fog That's but right. she has done some very interesting work on dating online dating culture and I, I find that really interesting because it's just um what's yeah, her name sorry I think it's Pia Var. I know her surname is Varis, which is V-A-R-I-S. First name, I believe, is Pia, P-I-A. Um, 
and uh, I've met her she's also very lovely I, I will interpret from the very small amount of time I've spent yeah, yeah. with her <laughs> but um yeah really interesting work around dating applications and yeah that kind of construction about how do you try to represent you know the side of you that you want to represent to a prospective partner or date or, what, or lover whatever it will be and then I don't know I just I do find it fascinating and that's almost like the refined version of Instagram isn't it it's like you've only yeah. got this tiny little segment where you can show your best self um and all that nonsense so yeah it's it's, I I think it can be quite toxic um if you take it too seriously I think meeting going into it and meeting new people and obviously having a big pinch of salt with it is fine but I think it can be really damaging to people's self-esteem as well I think oh my Um, god yeah I definitely I've I've, I've seen that with people in terms of like they'll they'll be disheartened yeah by not being right for 20 people in a month or something like yeah, it, yeah, it just yeah. doesn't make sense I wish I knew what it was like like 60 years ago where you'd have to like go and speak to people face to face and you had no other choice than organic that. meeting was, yeah. like it, it's such a novelty now I have very good dear friends of mine who met on tinder and they're now married with a baby and you know and they're like deliriously happy and that's wonderful but it, mm. what it, what is now the anomaly seems to be more the organic meeting and and I think that this is, again, where tech, and it's not something that I research in, I'm kind of speaking anecdotally now, but it's where tech disrupts the kind of normative social environment where we once would have approached somebody in a bar or, I don't know, out running or whatever, like where you, I mean, that sounds a bit stalkerish, but, you know, like maybe like we would approach somebody in a natural environment and we would have just struck, struck up a conversation. Whereas yeah. now it's like you're going to swipe through like a million faces and, and does choice give us um a greater sense of who we want uh or who we want to seek out I don't know if it does I think it actually makes it more problematic yeah I think from if I was Darwin and I was looking at what was happening today I might just be putting like phones just on the other side of humans in that like little monkey going to man (laughs) I, I can I can almost see it happen I think there's actually more phones on planet earth now than there are humans i think that was that was in like 2019 it was like 8.9 billion or something that's yeah i mean it's terrifying but it makes complete sense yeah yeah <laughs> it's annoying yeah. that it makes sense it's like, <laughs> why are we doing this i saw the metaverse yeah. recently and i was like we need to change something drastically about like the amount of data that we're giving to mark zuckerberg so that he yeah. thinks it's a good idea to have this virtual reality because people need to realize that the world is beautiful like, yeah, this is it. when when you like take this disconnection device in in your hand that makes you view the world through this like nice rectangle, and you actually look at things in context. And I'm I'm trying at the moment through Sam Harris's meditation app, waking up, waking up, just to look a bit more broadly with like a softer focus on what I'm doing because I think from stuff I've heard about how people look at stuff in context in the East and how they look at it in the West um we're very focused on on an individual level and i think phones are only drawing our attention to that like laser focus more so training this like broad awareness is is proving quite difficult and and i've meditated for years now so like it's it's even difficult for me i can't imagine what it'll be like for people who don't have any experience with like mindfulness and stuff like that 
I, I couldn't agree more. And I think coming back to what I said at the beginning, which I don't think I probably fully explained, but this is what I think about health management as well, is that we often see our bodies very input output in the West. And it's very, as you say, that very focused, focused way of, well, if I do this, then it will mean this. Or if I do this, it will mean that. Um, rather than looking at the bigger picture and the holistic way that health can be influenced and all the other factors, not just what we put in our bodies um, or how we feel about ourselves, but our environment and how that influences our health as well. And that, I think, is a very Eastern way of looking at health and Chinese medicine in particular. And that's certainly that's what I was brought up on. So I think that's often my lens with my research is to try and make people view our relationship with tech through that lens of like, you know, in in Chinese medicine um, and in Eastern medicine, we understand there are more understandings and ways of understanding how emotional states um, impact physically in the body. And I think in Western medicine, we're kind of slowly starting to get there. Um, yeah. But I think that we need to have that consideration around technology, you know, how technology not only can help us with health and it can, it can provide us with information. It can help us, you know, get healthier and fitter by monitoring certain behaviours. Um, but also having that device with you all the time and the, the stresses and strains and pressures that come with that and the immediacy that is presented with always on and always available culture is something that um, is, I think, really unhealthy in the long term. Yeah. Definitely. Are there are there any like cultures you've seen or have your eye on potentially doing some research on who aren't so or, or just aren't on their phones? You get to go to any tribes or anything? Say, hey, what's life like without Instagram? <laughs> How do you live without Instagram? <laughs> um, that's a really good question, and. I haven't worked with any cultures really outside of the West. Um, I mean, my partner's Indonesian, and so we've spent a lot of time in Indonesia and in yeah. Bali. And I mean, again, their look on the world is a very different one from ours in terms of it's not oriented around instant gratification in the same way. Yeah, they are far more focused on happiness, face to face kind of community yeah. and communication. They are on their phones, but it's far less mediated. So maybe yeah. I can try and get a research project to Bali. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't mind. I can help if you, you want. Can I, I can carry your bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, no, it's think, just interesting yeah it's, it's it is interesting because i think that you know i see certainly in the time that i've spent there um they had just a healthier dynamic and relationship with it because the technology is not always the problem it is a big part of the problem but it's not always the mm. problem i guess is my point being that we have to also look at the, the cultural and societal inf and the political structures that advocate engagement with tech and why whereas you know i don't see that same um pressure to self-manage healthcare outside of particularly say like uh, the US or the UK um, yeah. and even Australia as well I think um, increasingly and I think that that is it it's about thinking about the the political environment behind it and how that makes us engage with it in different ways and there are disparities and differences internationally with that yeah and and when you say that like the political side of it is it that there's one particular side of a political spectrum that's supporting this more than the other or is it kind of like you can't really escape it currently can you ask that question again? Sorry. Yeah. So when it comes to the left, the right, yeah. is there any particular side of those that is more focused on trying to promote this whole like neoliberal self idea or is it, it's just kind of, it's in our culture now and that's what we can expect. 
It's a really good question. I think that it used to be the right massively. We're looking at that kind of very conservative Thatcher right kind of self-entrepreneurial. We are the managers and the kind of architects of our our own uh, success. That kind of yeah. very neoliberal, individualized um, ideology. <clears throat> but now you see it being co-opted by the wellness industry, who. I wouldn't say a left, but there is a lot of left ideology in the wellness industry and co-opting Buddhism and mindfulness, but then obviously selling it back to us in these via kind of tech. Um, yeah. So I think that we have kind of gone full circle and it's just everywhere and unavoidable, which is really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I think that it's, yeah, I think that it's been so heavily co-opted and commercialized and monetized um that and also an extreme spirituality you know on the far left you also see the rigidity of those ideals but in a different way than you see in the right does that make sense yeah it's it's quite funny now that like the whole like liberal idea of this liberal free-flowing thing it's not like that it's like these are actually there are now a lot quite quite a lot of mean people uh on the left yeah. but they're protected by the ideas that it's it's on the left and i think when i when i first started this podcast i was like yes i am a lefty and that is my political identity and now i'm like oh my god i don't want any part of this <laughs> i don't want i don't want to be attached to anything here i don't like the ideas and i think that that yeah. came through like naivety i think as i have inevitably got a little bit smarter through reading just so many books i'm like oh actually i don't think it's a smart idea to be like oh i'm doing this and this is i'm attaching to their whole party and beliefs or maybe it's just the right I agree with you and I think I feel similarly maybe it's just the rise of performativity that we feel we have to segment ourselves within a certain political alignment or that those political ideologies uh are the identifier and then we can't have one without the other and I I'm the same I would consider myself very left and, and very liberal but then when you see the kind of performativity that has come from a certain number of speakers from that yeah. uh, lens, I'm like, well, I don't, that's far, I don't agree with that either. You know, like, I think it's, I don't know, is it about the performativity or the kind of packaging and commodification of leftist yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. well, uh, interesting you say about the performativity is uh, you, you've done some stuff on digital activism because I, I see a lot of people becoming these like, instagram activists telling you to care about the environment and stuff like that and i just wondered if if that was anything to do with your sort of knowledge on that area yeah so i this was um in my masters and when i then i did a little bit of research in that area and when i was doing that and i was kind of trying to think about what i wanted to take forward for research i was it was health or the environment and then i was just pulled into health I couldn't kind of get away from it and then my experience where I kind of hospitalized myself from lack of you know misinformation um that drew me into the health space but I had a fantastic professor Julie Doyle for my master's and she wrote a brilliant book called Mediating the Environment which Mm. I highly recommend she worked with Greenpeace for years um she's a fantastic scholar and human and she um basically kind of opened my eyes up to the kind of ways in which miscommunication occurs in particularly in social media spaces and the kind of visibility and the challenges rather of the visibility of climate change 
um, communication. So the problem being that we only see the effects of climate change after the event, after it's happened, after yeah. whatever kind of disaster has happened or an iceberg has melted or et cetera. And I guess what I found really interesting that still kind of speaks and feeds into my research now is that the limitation of the messaging that we can do with social media. And yet we, so much of us, so many of us rely upon it as a main source of kind of news and being yeah. up to date politically and environmentally. And I guess that's kind of where today that kind of seeps into my research. Just I think it's just that very broad kind of lens on like the limitations of social media activism. Opportunity, yeah. absolutely. That's I'm not just a complete dystopian tech hater, <laughs> but there are opportunities to it. But yeah, just just in terms of like, you know, if you see the limitations, you can think about how to overcome them. Yeah. And it was about how do you make this information relatable and make us empowered? Because um, because a lot of climate activism, you end up feeling quite disempowered from it. And that's not anyone's fault other than we feel very I mean, obviously, it's our fault for, you know, terrorizing the planet. But like, I mean, in terms of how we communicate about it, it's very hard to make people passionate and change those long-term habits with an instagram post yeah and then and then there's this whole like i, I guess the neoliberal idea kind of comes in again that not, not that you're having to work but it's like you're having to shoulder some personal responsibility for something that's pretty much out of your hands it, yeah and i, I listened yeah. to a podcast i think it was jordan peterson with a guy who wrote uh apocalypse never which is a book about essentially how we should be a little bit less worried about the environment. We should try and be a little bit more rational. He was on Jordan Peterson's podcast. So I'm, I'm imagining that he is, is relatively right wing. Um, but the, the thing that some of those people, they do tend to just have statistics available and, and, and they can yeah. be quite compelling. Um, but he was saying that there's something about digital like activism and environmental sort of Instagram activists and the similarities between them doing that and them getting CBT. It's like they usually turn to it because they're depressed with their situation. The environment sucks. Mm. They are sort of trying to put it more into context. It's like this is, this is a big problem. Like the pervasiveness of the issue for them of the environment is like everything's going to be fucked because of it. So like they have to do something. And then they feel like disempowered by it. Massively, it seems dangerous. Pressure. I just can't imagine. Like, I, I wouldn't if I had kids. I'd be like, please, just you don't need to be posting stuff on the internet about climate change. Like, take your personal responsibility, do your bit yeah. to tell your friends and families. But to, it's not going to do well for your mental health to, yeah. to be an activist online. I don't think. Yeah, this is it. I mean, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because you don't want to like. I guess dissuade people (laughs) people but I guess this is the kind of ever the paradox of social media and tech and mental health isn't it it's like you're trying to raise awareness about whatever the issue is and at the same time the process of doing so can feel really demoralizing (laughs) and then your mental health gets affected and so you know I think it's like yeah it's it's really it's a really hard tension and I I think this is where neoliberalism is so 
clever because it's a chameleon it will present itself as a really liberal idea free market principles we can all manage our own lives be entrepreneurs be keyboard warriors you know we can all kind of you know live the best our best lives however we want um but the society that operates around us the privileges the disparities the socioeconomic differences means that that's not possible and so actually in reality for everybody and so then you feel disempowered if you can't achieve or you can't take up you know, all these very self-optimizing productive jobs or behaviors or practices. And I think it's it's the same thing kind of with activism that, yeah, the kind of the more you know about it, the more disempowering it can feel. (laughs) But I think that neoliberalism will forever make us feel like we're never doing quite enough. Um, The problem isn't necessarily always our motivations. The problem is capitalism. And neoliberalism just likes to kind of throw that to one side and we don't we kind of ignore that and we focus more on the individual responsibility when actually the problem is is not us uh individually it's a societal and broader capitalist issue if that makes sense yeah I, I definitely think that does make sense and it's nice to hear because i think this whole personal responsibility thing is pushed so hard especially oh. in personal development of like yes. extreme ownership like jocko willing get up at 5 a.m do this do yeah. this like, for what mate I know. <laughs> you feel like you need a lion. Yeah. <laughs> you need to chill out. Like, you know your REM sleep is at the end of your sleep. It's very important, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. I think it's um and also, but it's like what works for you. And I really hate all this one size way yeah. of approaching productivity, even mental health. Um, because I think, and this is also my other issue with and then becoming more intelligent now with kind of um with kind of AI stuff but with health tracking it's very reductive that's another issue that I have about it and it kind of sets very clear parameters of what is and is not healthy behaviors or what is and is not a healthy weight or what is a good distance to run or not and as you say couch to 5k for some people that'll be a breeze for others that'll be a real challenge and that's absolutely fine um, for both so I think that it's this idea that you have to you have to follow these certain certain ways of living productively to be your best self but it's just so reductive because everybody is different and everybody needs different things everyone needs different amounts of sleep and different types of nutrition and everybody needs different ways of of managing their mental health during a pandemic um So I don't know why I've lost my tangent, but I think that was no, a- that's right. I was, I was, I was enjoying it. <laughs> I do, it is very strange. Like there are these numbers now that tell you if you're doing enough or if, if you're not doing enough. I've recently got an aura ring. Um, oh, right. Because okay. yeah. my, my flatmates uh, got, got a new one. So I've, I've inherited it and I've just found out that like I'm, I'm not getting enough REM sleep. And I'm thinking that probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I do, I do wake up usually probably 45 minutes to an hour before I'd want to ideally wake up even if I go to bed a bit earlier yeah and how do you know that do you have very set timings of when you go to bed and wake up oh yeah I'm 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 a slave to my bedtime (laughs) like 9 30 p.m like I will have been in bed probably for half an hour reading and then at half nine I'm like kindle off shut my eyes go to sleep nice but then I'm always up at like half five or half four yeah and then and I don't know if this is the same for women, but I feel like getting older. I'm not that old. I'm 27, but I'm getting up to go to the toilet all the time now. It sucks. Yeah, that's my main getting up for the night. It's really annoying. And as soon as I do, then my dog's awake and then it's all yeah. better off. And then, yeah, and no, I'm, I, I, I like to have an alarm, but I always wake up before it. 
yeah. is interesting. I don't know. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? But what my, I know I'm getting distracted. What my point was, <laughs> I wanted to ask you was, what about the accuracy of the aura ring? Like, is it, because I know that I've used sleep cycle in the past and I mainly did it for fun with a friend. We got into a really competitive thing about ensuring that whoever had the higher percentile sleep quality which of course was complete nonsense at the time because yeah, it that's me and my flatmate <laughs> <laughs> we got really competitive about it and i found myself one time lying in bed like really still because it picks up on the vibrations in the room wide awake and i'm like i'm gonna get the higher percentile sleep <laughs> and desperately needed the toilet i'm not going and like it's just nonsense because and it was kind of fun i was half doing it for research purposes just half for a laugh but it just shows like i, did, I didn't know the efficacy and how accurate uh the aura ring was because i, I, know I think aura like, ring is like best out there okay actually yeah. like they've got matthew walker is their like sleep scientist okay yeah could be just a deal that makes him look a bit more legitimate but like but bill gates wears it i feel like he's got enough money to wear any kind of fucking ring he wants and he, he's wearing a 300 dollars health tracker that's true it's, it's a good idea and yeah. and this is this is where it comes into like i'm collecting the data of my sleep so i can assess it to make it better but then for what because am I doing that so that I feel more focused during the day so I can get more done? Or am I doing that so I genuinely have a better night's sleep and have a better chance of not getting dementia? Yeah. Or are you doing it because you're a slave to neoliberalism? That is exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I have that thought a, maybe like three or four times a day now. Like yesterday, I ran across the road when like the traffic light was like right three two one I ran across and I got to the other side I was like why have I just ran <laughs> yeah I was like, I'm on a leisurely walk that I'm meant to be enjoying I'm running far faster to I, get home why did you run I just I don't know maybe there was a challenge in it <laughs> <laughs> just a burst of energy I must do yeah. the quickest possible yeah but it's because I, I pathologize all my behaviors now as soon as about the traffic lights I'm like, oh, great here we go again <laughs> by the time I reach the other side <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is a, I, I'm the same about neoliberalism. It's kind of that thing of like, I don't want to, uh, you know, as a researcher, I try to be reflexive as possible, but it inevitably, like, I can't help but always be so aware of that lens on my work because it's become increasingly re more relevant. Um, but unfortunately, it does dictate a lot of thought processes day to day and decision making. Yeah. Um, how have you found like digital health? We were on the subject of sleep a moment ago, but mm -hmm. have you found any sort of links between? digital use or, or tracking and sleep or tech use pre-bedtime no i would say just in terms of screen time just not having your phone being away from your screen for a yeah. good hour or so you know if you can again this yeah. comes from you know it depends what your job is and all of those influences you know but yeah. i think that for me is the biggest thing personally i think just generally during the pandemic what i did see from my project um because i did um I did some empirical research and interviews with a group of individuals in the very first lockdown um, okay. in Australia and in the UK, um, just to see how their first, this, that first shift when we all kind of suddenly went behind our screens and we're all going like, what is going on? Yeah. Is this bit forever? Like, are we all going to die? You know, the trauma, that initial phase. And, I, and it was really fascinating and kind of heartbreaking, but so enlightening that, that experience, um, which has then led me on to, you know, develop my business and, focus more on our relationship with tech but um i think that the the increase in screen time just throughout the day 
has still such a huge impact on how we switch off at night so it, I think bedtime routines are obviously really really important and yours sounds very healthy and you know and I think not being on your phone but I think it, it's more about your day-to-day relationship with it that helps you switch yeah. off at night that's just my opinion and, and, and from my research what I've seen with my consultancy with my clients but also with my participants uh, is that it's just about integrating habits that don't moralize your relationship with tech. So try to minimize that feeling of guilt if you're not able to have healthy time, you know, healthier time away from your technology. Or, or if you do find yourself on your phone up until the last minute before you go to bed, you know, not just feeling bad about that, but thinking about, right, well, how, what can I do with my day-to-day life where I actually create a boundary and a structure? Um, because I also think the moralization of health is really damaging. And we see it a lot yeah. with all the New Year's resolution stuff circulating at the moment you know the whole new 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 year new me bollocks um and i think that is really unhealthy and unhelpful i don't think it makes us feel good about ourselves in day-to-day life to moralize health yeah definitely not i I think i can definitely if i go on my phone in the morning i really try and keep my mornings like sacred but if i'm on my phone within half an hour of getting up i'm so hard on myself i'm like you pathetic you just gave into it then you yeah just, you the algorithm just got you <laughs> and it's it's not helpful you're right like yeah. I th- and the amount of times that I probably do that it's it's probably better that I do sit with that feeling of just like okay well I've done it how am I gonna stop this happening in the future yeah and then I've, that's it I've done it it doesn't have to be good or bad you've just yeah. done it it's to my mind how I deal with it and this is something that I've learned through therapy and I've heard you talk about it before in in previous podcasts but it's kind of that moment of pausing on a negative emotion giving time to that negative emotion not throwing it to the side but giving space just to feel it and then learning from it and moving on and of course we don't always have time in our day to do that and I'm not saying that I always do either but I just think that like if you can have a moment of reflection and clarity on why why you did it and why it made you feel bad and and then just think about how you can adjust it and change it in the future I think that it's also really important not to, when we do beat ourselves up, place all of that responsibility and agency on ourselves. And this is what I've actually been really focusing on in the latter stages of the book is about focusing on platform capitalism and the fact that these devices want our attention as much as possible. And the inbuilt infrastructures, you know, the behavioral economics and the choice architecture and the nudges and the ways in which they're designed is to maintain and keep and sustain our attention because they're, you know, monetizing our attention effectively, aren't they? So I think it's also really important to remember that because I think sometimes, I know we all in kind of like fundamentally do kind of understand that our attention is being, you know, is the value now, you know, data is, is hugely valuable and our attention is often the data. But I think just in those moments of your day-to-day routine, if you get, frustrated or upset at yourself or feel shameful and guilty about it which I know that shame and guilt seems to be really dominant emotion that people are feeling when they are struggling with their relationship with technology um, is to remember that and to remember that it's not just all on your shoulders that it's not just about individual responsibility that the platform developers themselves um, the tech giants uh, they are responsible for that as well and it's just about trying to assert boundaries and create a relationship with it which means that as you say, like you're falling into the 
the rabbit hole of whatever it might be or the algorithm is pulling you back in but they're designed that way and so it's just really important I think to take stock and remember that so you don't place all that stress agency and anxiety upon your own shoulders yeah I have actually taken the responsibility of the algorithm into my own hands recently and I've just tried to like solely skiing or snowboarding videos because yeah. least, I'm like, if I just see that, like I'll, I might waste a lot of time looking at it. Yeah. But it's not the usual stuff that I see. And I think they're potentially changing their algorithm back to like chronological, oh, um, okay. which I, I do think that'll be a good move, but I can't see that they're doing it without getting something from it themselves. I don't yeah. Think. Yeah. I guess maybe that they'll make advertising more, this is speculation. Maybe advertising will be more effective. Like when you pay, it will keep you in the chronological order for a little bit longer or something like that. But yeah, um, yeah, maybe it's to do with the kind of pan- I don't know. This is complete speculation as well. Maybe it's to do with the pandemic and the fact that I don't know. I I feel like with the pandemic, there's a real sense of stagnation. And I think this comes back to the toxic productivity argument we spoke about earlier, which was kind of one of the key findings from the project I did at the beginning of the pandemic, that we have to feel productive during lockdowns uh, because of that kind of neoliberalism, you know, ideology. But also I feel like there's a sense of stagnation. So being productive makes us feel like we're doing something with our time, that it's not wasted, that what, because the world is stagnated and because travel is difficult and because we can't live our lives as we did pre-pandemic, that doing all these things provides us with a focus and a motivation, but also a sense of productivity and a self-achievement. And maybe the timeline being more chronological speaks to what's happening in that immediate space because life feels yeah. a lot more immediate now. I feel like we can't look to the future too much, can we? So or maybe this is just my lens, but we can't look to the future so much. So we have to live far more in the present, which on the one hand is is great for gratitude and for ensuring that your day to day is a happy place or as happy yeah. as it can be. But we can't look towards holidays in quite the same way as we once did or line of life goals or future plannings. We have to live more in the immediacy. So maybe it's about capturing that immediacy. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to Mexico on Monday, and my mum the other yeah. day was like, "Oh, are you excited?" And I was like, "Well, no, not really, not yet." I feel like based on the amount of people I know have had holidays cancel, and um, it would be a foolish thing to be excited just just yet <laughs> until I'm like landed. Maybe that's yeah. when I'll be like, "Yeah, I'm quite happy to be here." Yeah, this <laughs> is it. Like, it's it's changed our relationship with planning, with sociality, with with everything. The pandemic is the, the, the ripple effects we're going to feel for forever um, in our lifetime. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting the ways in which it's changed our sense of time. I think and uh, optimism, and also yeah. I think in a, in a positive way potentially as well as kind of drawing into daily habits and routines, having a bit more time potentially to focus on how to make those more serving and nourishing to ourselves without trying to sound like a wellness influencer (laughs) i bet you're pretty buzzing really that this is the problem in the world you're like yes well i could research the shit out of this (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's never felt more personal. Well, this is the interesting thing is that my research has always been on how tech affects health, but it was always very much about just a, you know, a group of users who use health yeah. tech. And then my research has had to evolve as the tech has evolved. And that is, a, a, you know, a wonderful opportunity, but it's also a challenge. So I'm ever forever readjusting my kind of research questions, lens theory. And this is why it's taken me so long to write the Blumen book, because I'm trying to... I'm updating it all the time with all yeah. the literature that's coming out. It's just such a fascinating field and I'm so pleased and privileged to be a part of it, but it, it's just, yeah, I just can't stop writing because I'm like, it's all yeah. so interesting. <laughs> I just need to find a stop point. Um, I'm very much looking forward to that. I, th- I, I think you. I've read one book on, on tech before, which is Mo Gaudat's Scary Smart. And I don't necessarily know if I believe him um on on how positive he looks for it but b- before we wrap up this conversation i have one word that i'd like you to to speak on uh, it's yeah. the singularity so is what the singularity the point when tech is like surpasses human intelligence do you think that will come about no no <laughs> no uh is the short answer to that question ever um no because we have to design it And I feel that with AI, it's kind of fun to watch pop culture depictions of it taking over the world or over our intelligence, taking over control of the human race. And I enjoy all of watching all of those kind of, um, yeah, those stories and narratives. But I don't feel that it's a reality because ultimately we are the ones who create the algorithms uh, and provide the data for the machine learning for the intelligent systems that we're using in everyday life. Um, And I suppose I look at it in the lens of we've got so much AI in our everyday life that we're not even aware of, you know, just little things like predictive text or city or or whatever it might be. So I think that, I don't know, I, I don't feel that it will ever get to that space i hope it doesn't as well yeah I've, what about I've, you i have a sneaky suspicion that we will get to that point and i really? think in terms of the the obviously there's there's the, the stumbling block massively is the creativity and the spontaneous sort of production of ideas that's that's going to be probably the trickiest thing to instill into machine i know nothing about coding right I, yeah I'm, I'm kind of interested in learning like six months worth of Python, just as like a good to have skill in case <laughs> I end up needing to get a job as a coder at some point in my life. <laughs> um, but I think, I think I've heard it said that like, if, if we assume any sort of rate of, um, what's the word, like propulsion forward in terms of machines and machine learning. And is it, is it Murphy's law? I don't think it is Murphy's law, but basically that we're almost doubling tech power every 18 months oh yeah and it's yeah, like yeah, if, yeah. i just think maybe in in 2100 or something when people were born at the start of this century will pro- probably still be alive in terms of like the how longevity is going mm. there's quite a lot of good science and longevity now like people are going to be living for longer i think there'll be people who are born now who will see like the the first ai and i guess Mo Gaudat's argument is that it's, it's coming and it'll probably be here by 2050, but we need to ethically guide this and we need to show, not tell, how to behave, um, which I, I think is quite a nice idea. But I just think, it, let's, let's say there is a machine, like ethically guide it. It's like, yeah, you can raise a kid as much as you want and it could still be a rapist. Like, Well, it, well yeah, exactly. And also, <laughs> if it's based on the data that we're giving it, which it always has to be, 
then we need to give it um, representative data, but and yeah. it needs to not be, you know, how can it be unbiased and uh, not be racist or not be prejudiced in some way when unfortunately the human race is. Yeah. Um, and, and we see that reflected. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with Kate Crawford and her work at the AI yeah. Um, Institute in New York um, she, she did a fantastic lecture for the Royal Society I think it was 2017 now still worth a watch she's brilliant and yeah I guess my point being is she just summarizes very nicely how unethical a lot of the data is that we are drawing upon for AI and because also looking at the demographic of people who are building it and who are designing it so you like know 20 year old white men in america well yeah valley. valley vibes um white affluent tech bros. Men. <laughs> with the white tech bro narrative i mean don't yeah. even get me started on the social dilemma that's probably a conversation <laughs> um for another day uh i can talk about that forever but yeah the white tech bro narrative in some so i think that yes i think we need to of course ethics and ai is really important and ethics not to be seen through a lens of ethics is something separate from law but ethics written into law i think that's what's really yeah important. um yeah. yeah oh it's so interesting yeah i'm so excited for your book to come out when is that coming thank out thank you uh hopefully at the end of the year okay nice yeah well we'll have to get you back on to have a yeah. chat around then maybe ai will have come in between then and i can yeah. say that i was right and you're wrong <laughs> who, who knows sure <laughs> I'm, I'm sure actually if there is any developments it's gonna delay the publication of your book this is the problem <laughs> i just wish the field would just stop for a little bit and, yeah uh, yeah <laughs> oh, amazing well Thank you so much for coming on. That is honestly the best podcast that I've recorded in so long. I've enjoyed it Aww. thoroughly. You're an absolute legend. Um, you've you've started a business around this. You've got an Instagram going now as well. So where, where is the most important place for people to find you so they can keep up to date with this kind of information? And So I'm Dr. Digital Health, which is my website, my Instagram handle, and I'm on Twitter as well. That's probably the best place to find me. And on my website, you've got a list of all of my publications there. And if anything is behind a paywall, please drop me an email. I'm always happy to share it um, as widely uh, as I can. Um, but those are probably the key places to find me. But yeah, thank you so much. I've loved our conversation. It's been It's been a lot of fun well thank you very much for listening to that episode guys i really enjoyed that conversation i think rachel was an absolute legend and it was nice to understand the issues from a research um point of view so we actually know what's going on and we're not just like speculating um i personally think it's only going to worsen as a problem um if you don't start paying attention to it or at least being aware of the potential like drawbacks of social media and tech and just being a bit more resilient to having to have it around you all the time um but on a more positive note i do have a list of things that i'm doing personally to try and sort of gain back my attention my time from technology so one of the first things and we did speak about this on the podcast is no phone in my bedroom at all i never take my phone into my room i think it's the temptation is just too strong wake up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and like well i might as well just see what's going on with the world um on instagram i know people say well i've got my alarm on my phone it's like well, I mean, if you own a phone, you can probably afford a six, five pound alarm clock uh, from Amazon. A Casio alarm clock will do. Um, and honestly, do that for a month and, and you'll see your relationship with your phone start to change in a positive way. Um, reading before bed. Obviously, if you haven't got a phone in your room, what are you going to do before you go to sleep? Well, you could wind down, do some stretching or you could read a book. Of course, that's that would be my suggestion. Um, 
and I, I'm I'm trying at the moment to aim to have like a few longer reading sessions per month. This is just to kind of like retrain my focus. I think we're so used to this snapshot kind of focus of tweets, Instagram, Facebook, quick, 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 quick information. Slowing yourself down and reading for an hour or an hour and a half and really like getting into a book or read 45 minutes, have a little 15 minute break, shut your eyes, read again, have like a proper relaxing read a couple times a month. I think it can be really, really calming as well as just like it's helpful to train your attention. Um, Another thing in terms of like how you use your phone, notifications, I honestly, I, I can't see a use for them people trying to get hold of you urgently you can have just phone call notifications coming through whatsapp groups i don't tend to be in whatsapp groups and that's not necessarily like from an antisocial point of view although it probably could be perceived as that um with me it's more from a point of view that like i actually don't need all of this information and if you must be in a whatsapp group at least mute it on whatsapp so you're not getting all of of the notifications coming through and as well as notifications, Instagram notifications, I, I can't see serving much of a purpose unless like you run your business on there. And even if the, you do run your business on there, like you you actually don't need to be super, super responsive. I'm sure there's data that is on the contrary to that. But the trade-off that you make by being super responsive on Instagram is that it, it bleeds into your real life. And, and that's the kind of thing that's important here. Um, so yeah, hopefully those tips or techniques can help you feel a little bit more comfortable with your relationship um, with technology this podcast as well is sponsored by heights uh, there's information for heights in the description it's a brain care supplement consider it a little whey protein shake for your brain but in the form of two pills because your brain's not being nourished right no one really is we're cutting stuff out of our diet willy-nilly and our brains are paying the price for it heights can help you sort that and you can get 10 percent off with the code need to read now that's it from me. Please share the podcast. There's a link for the email list in the description as well, which is a great way for me to keep in touch with you without us having to meet on social media um, if you are going to try and reduce your time on there. So if you enjoyed it, please share it. You're all absolute legends. Take care. Love you. Bye.